Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Bert. Excellent job, as always. All right, everyone, could you turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1? So you can see on the board in the second session, we'll be noting Habakkuk 2.18, where we have the Lord ridiculing the, the idolater and idolatry. And this is what the Babylonians were engrossed with. And, and also, uh, the nations of the earth today are involved in idolatry. Uh, it may not be something, a, a little image that they're worshiping, but they worship other things like uh, athletes and entertainers and uh, worship at the altar of materialism and money. So there's a lot of uh, different uh, forms of sophisticated forms of idolatry today in our day and age. And so that'll be what we're looking at. This is the final section of Habakkuk chapter 2 that we're going to begin now. And uh, we'll finish off chapter 2 next week. But uh, this, this section is very important because it's now going to go back to the idolatry of the Babylonians and God's condemning them for it. And, uh, of course, all the nations of the earth, again, are involved in idolatry. So, uh, as we normally do, we not only pray for the offering now, but we'll also, uh, uh, we'll also pray for the, uh, the, the lesson as well. So, with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes, let us close. Let us, <laughs> heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're giving this, op this opportunity right now for everyone here in this chapel to express their gratitude through this love gift that we're about to present. Of course, we know that all that, you, that we have, everything that we have, is from you. In fact, our very being, our bodies, our volition, our souls, everything is from you. And so, Father, in the expression of our good stewardship, we want to be good stewards with the finances you've given to us. We offer up this present this love gift to you, expressing our gratitude for all that you've done for us, uh, not only uh, with logistical grace blessings and all the material blessings that we take for granted in this country and all the wonderful things that we have as American citizens, but also, more importantly, the spiritual blessings that we have uh, uh, come into at the moment of our justification. So, Father, we, we present it based upon the merits of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and our union identification with him, because we have no merit with you. So we, we pray for that. Uh, this offering in his name. We also pray for this uh, lesson. And again, I thank you for each person in the chapel. And I just pray, Father, that you would help me to be uh, delivering the message uh, today in the second session with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. Help me to concentrate and help everyone else in the audience to concentrate, break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening. And I pray that you people through the Spirit would be able to learn again and understand carefully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting in the second session in order to make personal application. And we pray that each person would be spoken to and all of us as a corporate unit, as a congregation, will be spoken to as well. So, Father, we pray for this second session in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. We're again reading the whole chapter, and then we'll look at verse 18 here in the second session. It says in verse 1 again, I will stand at my watch, Habakkuk says, and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he, God, will say to me and what answer I'm going to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied to Habakkuk. He said, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. 
See, the Babylonian is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous, the believer, will live by his faith. And that's a significant statement here. It's uh, the faith of Habakkuk expressed at the end of the book. And uh, the reason why, remember, there is an imminent invasion. Okay? Three, there end up being three invasions of the southern kingdom of Judah. So basically, during this time of adversity and crisis in the nation, actually the national entity will be gone for 70 years in, 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 in Judah, and they'll be returned from Babylon 70 years later, as we saw with the book of Haggai. And so they need to walk by faith as they go through this national crisis that's about to hit the nation. So this is something we need to keep in mind, too. And uh, I'm, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the next election. I don't feel very good about about it, and I think uh, we're headed to a national crisis. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But you never know. So we need to remember this statement. In fact, it was quoted by uh, Paul in Galatians 3. It's also in Romans 1, 16 and 17 and in the book of Hebrews. So it's something the New Testament writers took. Faith in what? Faith in God's word. So then it says in verse 5, Indeed, wine betrays the Babylonian. He is arrogant and never at rest because he's as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and he takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him, Babylonian, who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors, Babylon, suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you'll become their victim, because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you, for you have shed man's blood. You've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire and that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drinks to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Now we get to the final section of the, of the prophecy. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. <clears throat> There's no breath in it, but... In contrast to the lifeless idols, the Lord is in his holy temple. And as we saw in the first session, let all the earth be silent before him. Why? Because God's speaking through this prophecy to Babylon and the nations. So Habakkuk 2.18 on the board, my translation goes as follows. What value is an idol when its carver has fashioned it? A cast idol, which is a teacher of deception. For the one who fashions it for the benefit of the idol is trusting in his own creation. When he makes mute idols, so verse 18, like verse 17, is continuing the Lord's response to Habakkuk's argument against his choice of the Babylonians to discipline 
his, citizens, his fellow citizens of the nation of Judah. Now this response, as we pointed out, is began at verse 2, and it ends in verse 20. And specifically, this verse presents, these verses, verses 2 through 20, the chapter, presents the Lord's decision again to judge the Babylonian Empire in the future for their unrepentant, sinful behavior. So they haven't really done anything quite yet that is to, uh, uh, God knows in his omniscience what they're about to do. And they've done some things like they, with the Syrian Empire, they defeated them. They just beat Egypt in Carchemish, which around Lebanon. And so uh, they, their reputation was already out there. But they had yet to invade the Mediterranean portion of the world yet. And it's coming. So God's predicting this is what they're going to do, plunder these nations and exploit these nations for personal gain and be a, 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 and be a tyrant. And so God's anticipating this, of course, from his omniscience, and he's already issuing this judgment, which will be fulfilled 66 years later. So specifically, God is going to judge the Babylonians because of their evil treatment of the nations they conquered. However, Habakkuk 2 Verses 18 and 19 reveals that the Lord will also judge the Babylonians because they're also unrepentant idolaters. And that's the problem with the world today. We're all under idolatry. We came out of idolatry. Anything you put your ahead of your relationship with God is idolatry. All sin is a form of idolatry because you're putting yourself on the throne. We're all involved in idolatry prior to our justification. We were enslaved to it. In fact, Romans says in Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter that the whole world, the Gentile world, and this was true of the Gen uh, Jewish world, that the Gentile world was, is immersed in idolatry. Why is that? Well, we're fallen. We, reject, we follow, we listen, we've been enslaved to sin and Satan. Adam, we've been imputed, Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden was imputed to us, Romans 5, 12 through 21. We're all sinners by nature and practice when we came out of the womb. So God sent his son into the world to deliver, this, uh, deliver us from this enslavement to sin and Satan in cosmic system, not to mention eternal condemnation he delivered us. So in fact, these verses, verses 18 and 19, constitute the fifth and final woe directed at the Babylonians by the Lord God of Israel. Verse 18 begins with the Lord, as we just saw in my translation and your Bibles, the NIV. We, it begins with the God of Israel solemnly posing a rhetorical question to the prophet Habakkuk. And the faithful remnant of Judah, you say, well, what do you mean by solemn? Uh, well, here's why. The, there's no connective word in the Hebrew between verses 17 and 18. That's called the figure of ascendantine. All languages use it. It's a way to catch the reader's attention. And remember, they were audio, primarily audio. They would hear this read. And this was a technique to get him stopping and to think, it was actually the, the, the figure of a syndeton where there's no connected word in or now but between verses 17 and 18 is to catch the reader's attention. It also marks, it also marks that this is a new final section of the prophecy. It's a transition here. But it's also, there used this figure to emphasize the solemn nature of the rhetorical question. In other words, he wants you to think God, the Holy Spirit, to Habakkuk, wants the people who read this prophecy, heard this prophecy, to think. He could have made it a declarative statement. Let me point out to you, the Lord's asking in this rhetorical question, and by the way, the, the, we saw in our introduction, Habakkuk's use of rhetorical questions emphasizes he had a great literary mind, okay? Rhetorical questions, Paul uses them all over Romans. It's a gr great writers, great orators know how to do it. It causes, engages your audience, and causes them to think. So, we see the Lord ask here, what value is an idol when its carver has fashioned it, a cast idol, which is a teacher of deception? 
So this rhetorical question demands an emphatic negative response from its recipients. So therefore, if you made it a declarative statement that's emphatic, it's emphatically asserting that an idol, a cast idol, which is a teacher of deception, has absolutely no value whatsoever, whose carver has fashioned it. So therefore, we see that this is uh, this emphatic here. He uses a rhetorical question. He could have used a declarative statement. He could have used an emphatic declarative statement, just like I show you on the board. Why does he use a question? Again, he's trying to engage his audience. What's this tell us, tells us about God? Who's inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired Habakkuk and also the writers of Scripture to write what they did. He wants you to use your mind. He wants me to use my mind. He wants you, his, his people, to use your mind. It says, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And your neighbors yourself, heart, soul, mind, are all up in cabeza, in the head. Okay, the heart, kadia, noose in the Greek, it's up here in your mind. Here's where your volition, your norms and your standards are, your conscience, your self-conscience, all there, your mentality, all up here in your head. God wants you to think. We have a tremendous problem in the church today in America where we're dumbing down Christianity. We're dumbing down our country. People don't know English. They don't know how to do, they don't even make change anymore. I mean, you, you, you give somebody, what, what, change? I can't make change for 50. How do you do that? I mean, it's ridiculous. We need a calculator for everything. We don't, we're not, people don't know history in the country anymore. They're not teaching history. They're teaching, teaching all kinds of other stuff instead of concentrating on math, science, history, stuff like that, English. So they're not doing these things. And people don't read anymore. And so we need to, we have a dumbing down of Christianity. We want entertainment. We know that because people flock to those type of ministries. I call them the dog and pony show. The old timers used to call it that. I like that, the dog and pony show. I'm looking for another good way to say it because that's what people want. They want to be entertained. Who doesn't want to be entertained? You know, uh, everybody knows, we got a lot of music lovers here. I love music too. Music is a part of the worship of Jesus Christ. Yes, absolutely. The early church and the Jews and Jesus, they sang. They were singing people. In fact, when they were cutting them off to Babylon, the Babylonians would ask them, would tell them, sing us a song about Jerusalem that they just destroyed. And the Jews had to sing these songs. They would, otherwise, they'd die. So they would sing. They were singing people. Jesus sang a hymn on the night of his, his, his betrayal, on the night before he went to the cross. He was singing. They went out and sang a hymn, it says in Matthew. So... That's great, but we emphasize it too much. You have to emphasize the teaching of the Word of God. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. The first thing that they emphasized was the teaching of the apostles, which are in our New Testament. Because how are you going to pray? How are you going to give? How are you going to serve? How are you going to do anything if you don't know what God's Word says? It's the game plan, the Bible. It's the, guys, it's the game plan. The people who know who play football know what I'm talking about. You can't get on the field if you, know the, you don't know the playbook. So God, meaning God's not going to use you as a Christian if you don't know the playbook. In fact, the most effective prayer warriors are those who know the word of God because you're supposed to pray the will of God, but you can't pray the will of God if you don't know what the will of God is and you find the will of God in the word of God. <laughs> Communicated by the Holy Spirit. But the Christians want to do that? They're not like many of you who come here and you want to go, you want to, your plug is like I am, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. We go back, alternate, New Testament, Old Testament, do the different doctrines of the Christian faith. We go, we don't just go and sit on a hobby horse for three years just because I want to keep the offerings up. 
No, you go and you teach the Word of God systematically this way. Okay? And you have principles of interpretation. You, turn, you, translate the, you interpret the Bible in its historical literary context, compare Scripture with Scripture. You don't build a doctrine off of one verse. And you pay attention to the verse in its context. I mean, today, that's what they do. Sound bites. They take what they want, and they, they can make you sound like Hitler if they want. And this, this our culture, we have the dumbing down of American culture. So they can enslave us. Who's they? Satan and his kingdom. All right? So the word for idol there, it's the word pasel. It pertains, in the Hebrew, it pertains to a pagan and material effigy that is worshipped as a rep- representation or in lieu of a deity. It usually, people, indicates either an image carved from stone or wood or a statue cast in a mold made from gold or silver. And the Lord describes this idol as having been carved, which is indicated by the verb pasal, which is pertaining to piercing or cutting by digging into an object such as wood or stone or gold and silver. Therefore, this verb, pasal, it expresses the idea of a Babylonian carving out an idol from wood, stone, gold, and silver. So the Lord describes this idol, people. He describes, describes this idol as having been fashioned, which is indicated by the verb yatsah, which is used to describe the activity of human beings and shaping or forming various objects out of materials. It's used of techniques of shaping objects from raw materials. Here it speaks of a craftsman who carves the shape of a graven image or an idol out of either wood, stone, gold, or silver. And therefore this verb is expressing the idea here that of an idol having been fashioned out from wood, stone, gold, and silver by a craftsman. So what we're seeing here is that the Lord uh, describes this idol with the word meseha. And this word it means a cast idol, which we noted pertains to a cast metal image that served as, a, as an idol of a god, a representation of deity. Now, it's a term from, of uh, metallurgy. Uh, it's a term for metallurgy, which is the science, for those who might not know, it's a science or technique of separating metals from their ores and is used with respect to the production of objects. So context of several passages in which this word is used is found to suggest a method other than casting, though. The people of the ancient world people made their idols with a wooden center and were merely overlaid with gold, as we see in Isaiah 40, verse 19, and Isaiah 30, verse 22. And those passages demonstrate this. So Aaron's molten calf was also made this way. It was first of all formed of wood and then covered with gold plate. And that's evident in a way the which it was destroyed, by the way. Now the image was first of all burnt and then beaten or crushed to pieces and pounded or grinded to powder, i.e. the wooden center was first burnt into charcoal and then the golden covering beaten or rubbed to pieces. That's what they did. So therefore, in this passage in Habakkuk 2.18, the Lord's describing these idols or cast idol as leading people away from worshiping him who was the true and living God. These promote the false idea that there are other gods who are worthy of worship and can govern one's life. Now, in this rhetorical question in Habakkuk 2.18, it's followed by a causal clause, which presents the reason for the emphatic negative response to the previous rhetorical question. And this causal clause is asserting that the one who fashions the idol is for the benefit of the idol, trusting in his own creation when he makes mute idols. So therefore, this indicates that an idol 
which teaches deception is of absolutely no value whatsoever because the one who makes the idol for the benefit of this idol is actually trusting in his or her own creation. And the implication is that the idol is absolutely no value whatsoever because it's not a god which is worthy to be worshipped and not the true and living God, the God of Israel. Now when the Lord says that the idolater trusts in this idol, he means that they're relying upon it and placing their confidence in this idol to the point of a reliance upon it to govern their life. And then to add to the absurdity of this, the Lord ridicules the idolater and his idols by asserting that these idols are mute. Why trust in a God which cannot even speak? It's an inanimate object. You know, isn't that what Americans do? They trust in what's in their bank account for their security. I can't sleep at night if I don't have 10 grand in my bank account. I can't, if I don't have enough possessions, I, 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 you know, I, I've have, I know this because my family is like, I have members of my family like this. Can never have enough. You know, it's like, that's the way worship at the altar of materialism and money. And you can't take it with you. I tell these people, like, that's great, but you can't take it with you. Oh, you invested all these things. You can't take it with you. I told you this story when I was, two summers ago, I think it was the middle of the COVID thing. We were over my, 4th of July or Labor Day, or whatever, on my brother's Chris's house. And as, as, as our custom, me, Chris, and Jimmy, my brother, and Kenny, we went out, had some, uh, we were around the fire pit, we were smoking cigars and drinking scotch. McClellan 12, I think it was, okay? And so we're drinking scotch and we're smoking cigars and we're talking, and they're sitting, I'm listening, and, they're, and they're talking about their investments and all this stuff and retirement. I was like, mm-hmm. and I just, the spirit came over me. These guys, they're making plans and there's nothing wrong with making plans, but these guys are sitting there and there's no, no, no talk about God or, or anything like that. They're not even thinking about him and they're making all these plans. And I'm sitting there saying, Lord, I pray that you help these guys, my brothers I love, to see that that stuff, all well and good, but it can't, you're looking for your security from that thing, it can't save you from death. It can't deal with the problem that you face when you die. Then what are you going to do? And they all learned. We lost my brother at 55, this last past year, around this time. Shook me up. But you know what? I was praying that they, you know, it shook my brother Jimmy up. He's in my people's prime of life. He was a great guy. I love him. I miss his sense of humor. I miss everything. But he's gone. He, he didn't understand it. Now he knows. He knows. I often wonder why he... I knew he knew. He got the message. Why didn't God spare him? I think he didn't spare him for the simple reason he's trying to get to my brother Jimmy. And my brother was more shook up than anybody about his death. Not that anybody else, not anybody else, but Jimmy was really shook. And Jimmy's the one who needs Jesus. So if you could put him on my prayer, the prayer list, it would be great. Again, materialistic. That's Americans. Well, the world, everybody's like that. But, you know, some people, they like to worship a cow. Why? I don't, I like to eat cows, okay? Uh, you know, there's, there's people, you know, you know oh, that's Uncle Bob, you know, you don't want to eat him, you know, if they come back in reincarnation. I mean, this is insanity. Well, you laugh, but how about insane are we? We do the same thing. We worship at the altar of Tom Brady or Auburn football. They ever win again. They ever win a game over there? <laughs> I was put up to it by Larry Robinson. Uh, Sherry, you know that. He was, he's bad. But Auburn football. Well, come on. Who worships at the altar of Auburn football? Did they have Cam Newton? He didn't do anything for us. But anyways, in Alabama too, all oh, the altar. Bill Belichick, they want to throw him out now. 
We worship, you know why Massachusetts people are so miserable? It's because they worship at the altar of sports. The Red Sox stink, everybody's in depression. They drink too much coffee, they drink Dunkin' Donuts. Every five miles is a Dunkin', every mile is a Dunkin' Donuts. No wonder they can't, they, they're so wound up, tightly wound, and they, they, you know, road rage and all that stuff. The Celtics are the only thing that's doing any good, and they always choke in the end. The Red Sox, the same thing. I mean, they're, they're miserable. Your idols, I say to them, your idols will always let you down. Hey, I remember one time, 1978, the Red Sox, that's just before they won any championships. They hadn't won any championships since they sold baby, Babe Ruth. Baby Ruth. Yeah, good candy bar. Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. And they sold him. You don't believe the greatest base. He was the greatest baseball player of all time. You know what I found out? He would have been a, he was a Hall of Fame pitcher and a Hall of Fame position player. He is the greatest player of all time, not Willie Mays. He was my favorite player. No, Babe Ruth was. We sold him. This is what's going to happen to the Patriots. Mark my words, it's a prophecy. They'll never win another championship for 100 years because they let Brady go. So here we go. And we had the Red Sox. Another one. I was a big Red Sox fan. And every time they break our hearts. In 1978, we had a 14-game lead at the end of August. End of August. We're going a 14-game lead. We're rolling. We got Yastrzemski, George Scott, Jim Rice. We got Rick Burleson at shortstop, Jerry Remy at second, who came from Somerset, Massachusetts. Carlton Fisk behind the plate. Freddie Lynn in center. Come on, Dwight Evans in right, the greatest right, one of the greatest right field, maybe the greatest of all time defensively. We were rolling in Reggie Jackson, those hated Yankees. We used to go on the beach, go on the bleachers at Fenway Park, a buck and a quarter. My dad would take us. And you know, we were sitting in the bleachers there, we'd be packed out. But you know what? There was brawls going on between the Yankee and Red Sox fans. They'd be carrying them out. Blood everywhere. I was like, oh, my father's going, there they go. They're drinking and they're fighting. And, they're, they're, and, they're, and I was like, Dad, what are they doing back there? They're fighting the Yankee and Red Sox, man. They're always fighting. Of course, when we lose, we start throwing punches, right? So, they got a lot of Irish Catholics back then. And they drink and they fight. Just want you to know. My uncles were Irish Catholics, they drink and they fight. So we, they get, So I get to a point here. It comes to 1978. We were down, or we were up, we were up 14 games. Yankees come back and they storm the lead. We got two weeks to go in the season and the Red Sox make a mount of comeback and they tie the Yankees and they force a playoff at Fenway Park in 1978. Boy, the anticipation of that game. My hero is Kyle Yastrzemski. Yastrzemski, he had probably the greatest season in 1967. The last two weeks of the season, he batted like 700. Carried the team on his shoulder. Great defensive player. Unbelievable clutch hitter. And we get to the... And Yastrzemski, he goes two for four in the game. He has a home run early in the game. So it's like we're in the lead. Mike Torres, an ex-Yankee, he's pitching for us, pitching a great game. Bucky, something dead, gets up and hits a shot off at the end of the bat in the left field screen. And then we back and yes, this went up and went, oh... They took the lead. Well, we come back, mounted another attack. Now it's first and third with two out in the bottom of the ninth thing. And Goose Gossage, one of the fastest, pitch, uh, greatest relievers of all time, is pitching. And he's facing Yaz. And I go, yes, we're going to win the game. Yaz is coming up. Hit one in the screen, baby. He's my idol. He's my idol. He gets up there. And with a mighty swing, he popped it up to third base. Greg Nettles, and we lost. I never watched another baseball game till 1986, till Mookie till Betts hit one through Bill Buckner's leg. If they had the guy from Alabama, Stapleton, as a defensive placement like they did all year, we would have won the World Series. No, we had to lose it again. My idols killed me. Needless to say, I learned my lesson. The Lord said, don't trust your idols. They'll let you down. 
The Beatles, I love the Beatles. They broke up. Don't let you down. Do you ever notice that about the word? I love John Kennedy. I love it. They die. People die. They all they, your idols die. I got I you know who I finally worship the one who died and rose again. There you go. That your idols will always let you down. Whether it's money, entertainment, entertainers, whatever it is, sports figures, sports teams, they're gonna break your heart. Trust me. I know you guys, you Alabama fans, you're on a roll. You got Saban, just like we had Belichick. Guess what? They want to throw Belichick out. He went two and eight. Oh, geez. He just made the organization what it is today. No, we're going to get rid of him. They're going to do that to Saban someday. They're going to run him out. Why? He let us down. We're going to have a bad year one of these years, and everybody's going to say, time for him to go. He's too old. Just like they're doing to Belichick. Do not trust in your idols. Don't you trust their trust in your money to give you security? And God will teach you that. He's taught me that. I was raised a very materialistic home, like a lot of people were. I learned a long time ago. God said, no, all you need is me. All you need is me. All you need is me. I'm the one who has the cattle on a thousand hills. All the silver and the gold is mine. But the people in the ancient world, like the people today, who have more sophisticated forms of idolatry today, we're no different than the, old, the ancients. We're maybe even worse. Probably even worse. So Habakkuk 2.18 is not the first time that the book of Habakkuk has condemned the Babylonians for their idolatry. Because if you recall, he condemned them for their practice of idolatry in Habakkuk 1.16. And also uh, the Lord himself condemned them in Habakkuk 1.11. Because in both passages, they were practicing idolatry because they worshipped themselves and in particular their military power. Yes. There are people in our nation, they worship at the altar of the military power. Remember, remember what Eisenhower said when he left office? Beware of the military industrial complex. Now, every nation has one and everyone needs one. We need to defend ourselves against the enemies who are everywhere. I'm not saying we get rid of the military industrial complex, but it goes a point where you go into idolatry, where you think that that, that is going to stop a nation from defeating us. No, Jesus will stop them from th- defeating us. Hasn't history shown us that? We can stock our pile our weapons and we can, the Chinese can too and the Russians can too. At the end of the day, if they're going against God, they're going to lose. They're going to lose. By way of definition, people. By way of definition. I see, put this up here on the board. By way of definition, idolatry, people, pertains to the worship of something created as opposed to the worship of the creator himself. It is not only giving people to any creature or human creation the honor or devotion which belongs to God alone, but also is putting anything ahead of your relationship with God, including human relationships. Even your wife or your husband and your children can keep you away from God, loving God the way you need to. He, remember Jesus said, he who does not hate his father and mother is not worthy of me to be my disciple. Does he mean literally? He's the one who told you to honor your father and mother. What is he doing? It's hyperbole. It actually means love less. He want, he was supposed to love Jesus more than your parents. I told you the story. When I was laying in bed, when we were saying our prayers before my father came home, and we were like all tiny little shrimps. I was thinking I was four years old, and my mother had us in the bunk beds, and we're praying. And I said, I love you more than Jesus. Don't say that. He gave that. He gave you to me. Oh, okay. 
Okay? I'm a little kid. I learned right there. Don't practice idolatry. Okay? We see that we see that you could put your relationship to someone. I've seen, I had a friend of mine. I had a friend of mine. I, he's still my friend, okay? Christian, born again, and him, he married this girl. Way too young for him. He loved her, right? Okay, I was like, oh, good, good, good. And so they get married, and his love for her, and basically it's an obsession with sex for her, basically was idolatry. He admitted it to me. Years after, and I was trying to, I, I lost my faith. Little, 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 they both drifted away from the word of God and doctrine. I was like, oh, great. And finally, it blew up. It blew up, it backfired. The things that they were doing blew up right in their faces, and now they're divorced. And he came, came and admitted to me, humbly said, she was an idol. This is a, this is a, this is a warning to people who are, are seeking to get married. Marriage is a great thing, but do not let it become idolatry. You know how you protect against that? Both partners. Both partners need to have the Lord first. They need to have the Lord first. Don't marry somebody who does not have the Lord first in this set of priorities. It'll come back to bite you. You have to keep that in your mind at all times. Satan is seeking to destroy you and take you away from the word of God until he'll do anything he can. Remember that. That's my marriage counseling. Right there. And if you're already married... You need to make sure that you're both on the same page. Jesus comes first. And, you know, family, look at Abraham. Abraham, leave your father, okay, and your family, and go to a land I will tell you where you're going to go. I'm going to tell you where you're going to go. He didn't even know where he was going. Just go. Leave. He said, listen to the text, leave your family. Abraham loved his family, like we all do. But you could love your family so much that you don't, you don't go after God's will. And forgive me and pardon me for saying this. I wouldn't have come here to Sun Huntsville or to Iowa 20 years ago if the Lord was not first in my priorities because I love my parents and I love my brothers and sisters. I'm here not to say to make you feel bad or you put me real No, don't. I'm here to tell you I'm the real deal. I care about the Lord. I'm teaching you what I'm, what I'm telling you and teaching you is what I practice. That by example. I'm supposed to give you an example. As much as I love them, it didn't start, it can't stop me from doing God's will, which was to be in Huntsville. Huntsville never would have came up if God didn't, it would never come up if God didn't say it was okay. As soon as it popped up, I was like, there it is. Praying for it, there it is. I can't practice Id- be idolatry if I kept away from doing what God's had me to do. I'm not here to go, I mean, you know, the guy in the passage, Jesus did this all the time. Well, I got to bury my parents. Well, what was keeping him coming? Well, he, his, his love for his... It's not that he didn't want Jesus, didn't want him to bury his father. Okay? The, the issue was, he was using excuses. His, his love for his father was an excuse not to follow after Jesus. He was doing this all the time. Jesus didn't have big crowds all the time. He fought, they followed him because he heals. Just think about if he came out today. He'd be, he's healing people. He's feeding people. Oh, bees, you know, the, 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 what do you call it? The, uh, the bleeding hearts would love that. He's feeding people and get a free meal. Maybe Jesus will give us a hamburger down here. I'm going to Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. They were falling around for the wrong reasons. And Jesus wore the, warned the, he thinned the crowd out. That's why I say a great ministry, they don't have a packed out house. That 500,000 people. Are you kidding me? If you're teaching the truth, you're going to thin the crowd out. Jesus did. How many people were with him at the cross? It's hot. It's, 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 Wide is the road that leads to destruction. 
And idolatry is used by Satan to lead you down that path. And that's including you believers. All of us. All of us have to be worried. Some people, their God is, the, is drugs, alcohol. Sex is a big one. It's destroying people. It's destroying believers in the sense they're getting disciplined and dying the sin of the death. The practice of idolatry, people, is a violation of the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments, which are recorded in written form in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 4. You don't have to hold your place. Go to Exodus quickly with me, and we'll wrap it up. Look at Exodus Exodus chapter 20, please, verse 1. Now, let me, let me say something, too. I was talking to some people, in a, it was a very complimentary thing they said. I said. And I said, they were saying something about, wow, some people, they couldn't listen to what they, you're saying here. So it was very powerful, very, very convicting. Let me tell you something. That's a sign of the Holy Spirit. He's convicting us. He loves us. Do you let your kid continue down a path of destruction? Or do you turn to them and say, no, this is wrong. You don't set your sister's hair on fire. I mean, I'm being trying to give a little levity there because everybody gets convicted. I get convicted. You're going to get convicted. Paul got convicted. We're sinners. Relax. It's all right to get convicted that you're a knucklehead like I am. We're all convicted. At some point, it's good. It shows that we need to hear the truth, as we said in the first session. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. Because I have to answer Jesus Christ one day, and I don't really want to face him when he's mad. So you need to listen to the conviction. It's a good thing. It's going it's to help your spiritual growth. It's part of the pruning process. Okay? It says in Exodus, chapter 20, verse 1. <clears throat> It says, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, <clears throat> but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Go now to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Another big passage on idolatry. There are many. Look at Romans 1, 18. <clears throat> In Romans 1, 18 through 23, Paul describes the entire human race as involved in idolatry. Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. Notice the present tense. It is being revealed today from heaven against all the, un, the godless and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, he's going to tell you how his wrath is being revealed today. Watch what he says. He says, and hear what he says, since what we may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it to plain to them. Why? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now look, it says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but thinking, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. But notice, he made it plain to them. There's no such thing as an atheist because they all know there's a God. Then why do you say there? Because they're denying the evidence. It's, look at, it's plain as the, the old expression, plain as the big nose on my face. You got, okay? The world, they just don't want to, I don't, I'm gonna, they don't want to say, I don't want to worship that. I want to live like hell. I want to go home and have sex with whoever I want, do as much drug as I want, do as much alcohol I want. That's why they, they don't come to Jesus. They love the sin so much. That's why. I want to live my, do my own thing. My way. Yeah, that's the anthem for Satan. I love Frank Sinatra, but that's the anthem that Satan wants. My way. Well, you're on my, God says, my way. He says, my way or the highway. Okay? So, look at that. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him. They knew God. And the word they knew, it's gnosko. They knew by experience. Don't tell me. And I like when everybody says, well, I'm an atheist. And I, I just, you'll see me if you're in a room with me. And I'll go smile. And I'm going, I know something you don't know. <laughs> Paul just told me through the Holy Spirit that you know. And I know. And God knows. And you can sit there and talk to me all you want that you don't believe there's a God. And give me all these crazy excuses. But just look at yourself. I said to this person, just look at you. You're a miracle. Look at how fabulously, wonderfully made. And even if you're butt ugly like me, you're still fearfully and wonderfully made. What is wrong with you? I'll tell you what's wrong with you. I don't want to worship that. The devil's advocate. That was a tremendous movie. Somebody must have knew doctrine. They must have knew the angelic conflict. Whoever wrote the screenplay was unbelievable. It's like, and Al Pacino, man, I thought for sure he was the devil. It was unbelievable. And worship that? Whoa, I went, fell out of my chair or my couch or whatever I was on at that time. That was fantastic. In fact, I might rent it. I might watch it on Keep Prime tonight. Unbelievable. No, they don't want to worship God. People say, well, hell's a bad thing. That's where they want to go. People go to hell because they choose to. God didn't want them to do that. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes him shall never perish but have eternal life. For the Father did not send the Son to the world to judge the world. But that the world might be judged, let me be safe to him, excuse me. Right? Right. That's not where God wants. He wants all people to be saved. What do you think he sent his son to the cross for all people? That's why it's ludicrous of, non, uh, of limited atonement people to say that he only died for the elect. You don't know the love of God then. I don't care how smart you think you are or how, how much Greek and Hebrew you know or theology you know. You don't know the most basic thing of theology is that God's love is, is all-encompassing. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore gave them, as a result of this, therefore says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. I don't want to go any further because I want to finish with this. Because this this is going to lead me to another topic that I'm not going to cover today. Where does idolatry come from? Deuteronomy 20, 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. And 1 Corinthians 10, 20. They teach, those two passages teach, that the worship of idols is connected to the worship of demons. 
since the sacrificing to idols is in reality sacrificing to demons who promote the worship of idols. Idolatry is the worship of something, again, created as opposed to the worship of the Creator Himself. And remember, Abraham came from idolatry. Joshua 24, 2 teaches us that. The most noteworthy instance of idolatry is the golden calf episode with the believers of Israel, the Exodus generation. After all God did with those miracles, destroying the superpower of the world, Egypt, and they went right into idolatry. As soon as Moses went up in the mountain, they, they, you know, that's why I say when I go on vacation somewhere, I used to tell my congregation, I'm going up to the mountain. When I come back, there better not be nothing going on when I get back here. Okay? I used to say that, you're going to rise out of the crowd. And referencing that. So as we close, let me just wrap up with this. Idolatry originally meant the worship of idols or the worship of false gods by means of idols, but came to mean among the Old Testament Hebrews any worship of false gods, whether by images or otherwise, or the worship of the Lord through visible symbols. And ultimately, people, in the New Testament, idolatry came to mean not only the giving to any creature or human creation, the honor or devotion which belonged to God alone, but the giving to any human desire a precedence over God's will. You shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart and soul and mind strength. You shall have no other gods before me. No gods of materialism, wealth, sex, anything. Nothing. Nothing comes ahead of him. As a believer, if you want to get into idolatry and you want to be immersed in it and have human relationships be your God or something like that or sex be your God or drugs or alcohol be your drug, you're going to be disciplined by God. Why? Because he loves you. Hebrews chapter 12. Those whom I love, I reprove and rebuke. Revelation 3.19. And didn't he go after the, the Laodicean church there? They were idolaters. They were Christians. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. What does he mean? I wish you were either hot or cold. I wish I, That doesn't mean that he didn't want them saved when he said, I wish you were cold. It means the waters of Laodicea were poisoned. Okay? He, he said, I'd rather you be hot. That means therapeutic. The waters, you would have hot springs. They were therapeutic. They had a bad water supply, uh, Colossae. Theotide, excuse me, uh, uh, Laodicea. And so you have also cold that's refreshing, okay? They were neither. The water of Laodicea was not. It was neither. It was lukewarm, made you vomit. So God, Jesus Christ saying, I, want you, I either want you therapeutic or refreshing in your walk. Refreshing to other, therapeutic to other, okay? I want you on fire for me, okay? So there's, you have to be single-focused, and every day it starts with the word of God and prayer. Every time when you walk out of this, every, you have the corporate worship, as I said before. We're here on Wednesday and Sunday. And then you have your every day, rest of the week, you have to have a sanctified time alone with God. Start your day with the word of God and prayer, whatever time you can get. And talk to him throughout the day. And, to, and try to apply what you've been taught in your Bible study or here or on your own sanctifying time alone with God and practice the word of God. Stay away from all various forms of idolatry. Don't let anything take you away from, take you away from pure devotion to the Lord. John left off with 1 John. Keep yourselves from idols. Every sin, everything that's not, not uh, obedience to God is really a form of idolatry. We put ourselves on the throne when we say no to God and live in disobedience. I'm my own God. I will be like God, like the devil said. Well, we all know what's going to happen with him. His judgment is soon. And so we don't want to follow who used to be our father prior to justification. Now we want to follow and reflect the character and standards, the holy character and standards and love 
that our God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Thank you for every single person here. We pray that this message, the Holy Spirit, do a mighty work to all of us here in this chapel. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.